I think that was the best that I do. Recording. All right. Thanks for coming out. It's it's it makes it really fun for me that that you all turned out. I hope it will also be fun for you. I hope that you can also hear me and my voice doesn't trail off at some point during this three-hour sermon that I'm about to give to you. But my buddy Kevin there, he'll he'll just raise his hand probably when he can't hear me anymore. So that'll work out well. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, just like John was saying, and uh, starting in verse 25. The questions of Jesus, we'll be doing nine of them. There's hundreds of questions that Jesus asks in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels. We'll be looking at nine, and uh, this one in particular, which of these three do you think proved to be neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? It's a little bit out of context and hard to, extend, hard to understand by itself. So we'll jump right into the passage and read it so that you have some context. You'll probably recognize the parable of the Good Samaritan. So starting Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord with all your, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, who's an assistant in the temple, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, when he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. So Jesus' question is actually the answer to two questions posed to him by this lawyer, a teacher of the religious law. The two questions being, who is my neighbor? And ultimately, his first question, what must I do to be saved? Simple but really profound questions. And just, just so we're all on the same page, I'm going to use the word saved and salvation a lot. The working definition of that for now is the restoration of your relationship as a child of God, a relationship which was broken by sin. And so that's, that's just something I'll be coming. We'll unpack that a little bit more as I go, but just so, just so I'm not throwing out words that have no, no definition for you, that's what we'll be working with. <clears throat> so at first glance, what does it look like Jesus is saying to the, to the question, what must I do to be saved? Growing up, I had heard this parable taught to me in Sunday school, and I always kind of assumed that it's saying, 
Well, don't do bad things. Don't be like the priest and the Levite. Don't deny people help when they need it. And you should be like the Samaritan. You should help people. You should be kind to them. You should... And then that's basically how you be saved. Just do good things. Kind of, I'd call this like a, like a moralistic salvation. Do good things and be saved. That's kind of what I believed. Up until I did this study and looking before and after what comes. And you see, there's, there's, there's a lot here. A lot more than just meets the eye in this one, in this one short passage. And I'm really glad to discover that because... If it's a moralistic salvation, I don't really know that I would be saved. And I can prove it to you because, you see, two years ago, there was the tax day floods, right? It rained about two inches an hour for six hours. And if you ask our resident weatherman Mills here, disaster. <laughs> disaster. There was water, a foot of water flowing down my road, which, growing up in New England, doesn't happen. I've never seen that before. So we jump in the car and rush it off to a parking lot around the corner, a little bit higher up, save the car. We're feeling pretty good about ourselves, still remote, somewhat dry. And we watch another car driving down the road, not so lucky, edged its way into the ditch. One foot of water becomes four feet. That's a one-way trip for most cars, as it was for this one. So we started talking about the ditch. I didn't realize how dangerous the ditches were. You can't see where they are because there's a foot of brown water covering things as far as the eye can see. And there's ditches surrounding you that you can end up in and no more car. Three people pile out of the car, young people. So we're looking at them. They don't look like us. Why are they out driving at night? I don't know. I've never seen them before. Maybe they're not my neighbors. Maybe now you can see where I'm going with this. My actual neighbor comes out of her house, trudges over to the car, waves, over, waves him over, talks to him, turns around, goes back to her house, they follow. And at this point, it gets pretty quiet in our car. Because what we realize is that what she just did is she invited them back to their house. Something that we probably should have done five minutes ago, seeing as we live right over there, and they probably just looking to get out of the rain. But we didn't. We didn't even, it didn't even occur to us to do this. And so I knew the parable. I knew that you were supposed to help people, but I didn't do it. I didn't even think to do it. So moralism didn't really work for me. Maybe it works for you. Maybe when things are going well, but I think when things get kind of hard and weird, probably doesn't work that well. And so I'm so glad I had to dig into this a little bit further and see what's coming before. See, what's happening before is the disciples, for the first time, are understanding who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of God, sent to save Israel and ultimately all of the world. And it, this understanding that they've gained of who Jesus is is changing the way they do everything. Just like the disciples, our salvation by faith in Jesus will cause our cold hearts to be exchanged for God's heart. And this salvation will cause us to live out the gospel by serving the broken in ways that we never could have imagined. Let's pray. God, 
Will you send your Holy Spirit to us so that we might hear your word and understand what it means and that we would be changed by it, God? There's nothing we can say or do here tonight that will accomplish anything without you. So we ask that you would come and be with us as we, as we open up your word and, and try to understand it, God. Help us to do that. In your name, amen. All right. So let's, let's turn back a, a few, just a few verses to Luke 10, verse 16. So what's happened here is Peter, one of, his, one of the disciples, has just made this confession of faith in Jesus. He asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ sent by God, the anointed one of Israel, the king of Israel, who has been promised for hundreds of years prior in the Old Testament that God would send someone who would save all of Israel. Peter confesses that Jesus is that Messiah. So it's a huge moment. Shortly thereafter, Jesus decided we're going to travel to Jerusalem where he's ultimately going to be crucified and then three days later rise again. And so he starts off on this journey. He's gathering more disciples as he goes. Eventually, 72 disciples end up following him. And what Jesus does is he sends them out in pairs to all the villages and towns that he's going to visit along the way, along the road to Jerusalem. And his instructions are take nothing, no resources. You're going to rely completely on the hospitality of the people that you're witnessing to. What you're going to say is that the kingdom of God is coming. I'll come shortly thereafter. And you're also going to heal their sick. And what's going to happen is they're going to provide for you. You're going to stay in their homes, eat their food, drink their wine. And so you've got strangers serving each other. You've got the sick being provided for. And it kind of sounds about what's going to come in the, you know, in, in the, the parable that's to come. It's, there's some familiar themes there. So that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 16. I'll get there too. Jesus says his, in his final instructions to them, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me, and that's God. And so this is kind of a hard verse because in that situation with me in the car, I have to kind of ask myself, did I reject a person, therefore rejecting Jesus, therefore rejecting God? I'm not sure, but it's an uncomfortable question to ask yourself. But stick with me, there's hope here. We'll get to that. Verse 17. The 72 disciples returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Great victory. Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like heaven, like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I think this is like one of the most amazing verses in all of scripture because I mean what if I came in here and told you that like you know people of the bridge Montrose because of the things that you're doing in Houston and in this in this community of Montrose I just saw Satan fall like hev- like lightning from heaven that's incredible but it's nothing compared to what I saw next like what could possibly come after that 
I saw your names written in heaven. And that's just a way of saying that your salvation is secure. And that's the amazing thing compared to the disciples wielding the unlimited power of God. The amazing thing is that they have been saved. Them exercising the power of God is a result of their salvation. So that's an amazing thing. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. I love that the Son of God rejoices in the Holy Spirit. I wonder, I wonder if we do the same thing. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. This is a pretty key verse. He's calling the disciples the little children, and that's why they understand who he is. What do little children do? They believe. They have faith. Everett, my son, doesn't doubt that he's going to be fed. <laughs> and if you look at him, you, you, well, he's, he gets fed. <laughs> so, the disciples have this kind of faith. And even the demons are subject to the name of Jesus. It's this enormous crescendo, this high point in the ministry of Jesus. He goes on. You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, such is your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus has like, revealed who he is to the disciples. They know who he is. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so this is just one more thing that God does that seems backwards to like, the world's understanding of how things should be. You would think the wise and understanding, surely they're the ones who get to know who God is and get to see him for who he is. And it's just not that way. The, the childlike faith gets to see who Jesus is and therefore understand who God is. So coming right off of this this little kind of this this talk that Jesus has given to his disciples, we go straight into our text and behold a lawyer. So who's the lawyer? Is he the is he the childlike in faith, the same as the disciples are? Or is he the wise in understanding? We're going to see pretty, qu pretty quickly who he is. The way he asks his question, Teacher, what, I, what must I do to be saved? He believes in his own understanding. It says lawyer. That's how it describes him. But that could be translated scribe or teacher of religious law. The law for them in Israel, it's a theocracy. The law is the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. He's an expert in that law. He would debate that law with other teachers and um, to the finest minutiae. He'd have the entire first five books of the Bible memorized, probably more than that. He's an expert in his field. So he's the wise in understanding. And if you're, if you're writing a book and you're trying to highlight the difference between two opposite things, 
what you're going to do is you're going to stick them right next to each other so that you can't help but notice the chasm that separates them. It's juxtaposition. And so you've got the disciples with this amazing victory through childlike faith in who Jesus is. And then you have the lawyer immediately. And so I love this because, you know, maybe God's just a great writer, you know. But it's more than that because he's doing these things with real people in real places throughout real time. Luke's not just making these things up like you would if you were writing a book. He's doing this through eyewitness interviews. And so the interviews have to agree. So this is how things are playing out in real life. And so you ask yourself, how often does God does this? And he does it all throughout scripture, all the time. And even to this day, as his story of redemption is continuing to be unfolded, God is working people and places all the time to unfold his glory and who he is to us. And that's an amazing thing. I just love that. Let me catch up to where I am. In my notes, this is the difference between like pros and amateurs, probably. <laughs> All right, so the lawyer's tone. It's kind of a mocking tone. He's seeking to put Jesus to the test, it says. And so you kind of see he doesn't actually believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Because if you do believe that he's the Messiah, you don't put him to the test. You just don't. You worship him, you pray to him, you follow him, but you don't put him to the test. And that's what the, that's what the lawyer is doing, the teacher of the religious law. <clears throat> Jesus plays right into that pride. He turns the question back on him. How do you read the law? Well, this is this guy's area of expertise. So he's going to give you the right answer. He rattles it off. You shall love the Lord the God with all your heart and soul and mind. This is a very common verse that every Jew would have known. It's Deuteronomy 6.4. It has a name. It's called the Shema, which means listen. The verse is, listen, O Israel. The Lord our God is the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. The next verse commands that you should write this verse on your doorpost of your house and say it to your children every day lest you never forget it. And even to this day, a devout Jew might have this verse written on their doorpost because it's commanded in Deuteronomy. So this is a well-known verse. The teacher rattles it off. But seeking to justify himself, who is my neighbor? The next question. Again, Jesus is not going to get dragged into some kind of debate. This is what this guy does. He might not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but he's noticed enough about his ministry that he's going to come out and see what's going on. He's going to try to drag Jesus into a debate so he can see what he's made out of. This question, who is my neighbor? It seems innocent. It's not, it's not that innocent. It's pretty loaded, actually. It comes from Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. That's pretty key but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The sons of your own people. In the context that he uses it, the lawyer's referring to who is my neighbor as the people of Israel. The people of God as he knows it. And, of course, he's at the pinnacle of the people of God in his own mind. He's the teacher of their law. The expert. 
So he might have noticed that Jesus spends a lot of time with people that aren't the religious elite of the people of God. He spends time with the outcasts, with, um, with the lepers, with prostitutes, with foreigners and Samaritans, whom we'll get to. You see, there's another verse shortly after in Leviticus 19.34. It says, You shall treat the stranger who travels among you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so there's this tension in Leviticus. Is my neighbor the people of God, the people of Israel? Or is it everybody? Is your neighbor everybody? It's kind of both. little fun fact. The 12 disciples, I never knew this. The 12 disciples is a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. So, Jesus is for the people of Israel. But the 72, the 72 is a reference to all the nations of the world. That was the number of nations known at that time. So, it's kind of both. I never knew that. That's incredible. The way that Jesus answers this question is with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? It's extremely ironic. It it contrasts the inaction of the religious elite, the lawyer, who should have helped the man who was robbed. It contrasts that with the sacrifice of the despised Samaritan, some some versions of the scriptures say despised Samaritan. In doing this, Jesus is trying to do two things. He's trying to break down the pride of the lawyer get at his heart and really expose his prejudice against foreigners and his own self-righteousness and pride. But he's also painting a picture of what it looks like to actually love God with all your heart and soul and mind. A little on the Samaritans. We don't really have time to dig into the full historical context, but it's incredible. What you need to know is that this feud between the Samaritans and the Jews has been going on for 750 years. What happened, in short, is that the northern kingdom of Israel had a series of horrible kings who led them to worship idols, essentially, and they were ultimately conquered by the Assyrians uh, about 750 years prior to to Christ. Uh, And the, the, the Jews of the northern kingdom ceased to be, in any recognizable form, the people of God. These are Samaritans. And so from that day forward, there's been this rift, and a lot of things happened between then and this point. A lot of bad blood. So they're enemies. They hate each other. And so it just, crank, kind of, it just cranks up the tension in the story that Jesus is putting forward. Right, there we go. Jesus also flips the question. He doesn't answer the question, who is my neighbor? He makes the question, which of these became neighbor too? And the reason he does this is because if he just comes right out and says, hey, the Samaritan, he's your neighbor, get used to it, that message gets rejected, right? He flips it so that the lawyer has to answer correctly. There's no way he can say, oh yeah, it was the, uh, you know, it was the priest and the Levite. They, they were the neighbors because they're, they're brothers in Israel. Remember, the man who was beaten is a Jew. That's an important point. 
No, he can't say that. There's no way. He has to say it's the Samaritan. And you get a little bit further glimpse of his prejudice in the way that he answers. He can't even bring himself to say it was the Samaritan. He was the neighbor. He says, the one who showed mercy, he's the neighbor. He can't even bring himself to say it. I love how Jesus does this. He, he's responding to the lawyer in a way that draws the lawyer out a little bit. He's forced to answer correctly and at least consider what Jesus is putting forward to him. So why does a Samaritan do this? Why does he risk his life for a Jew, his enemy? And, and make no mistake, he does risk his life because if you find somebody who's been beaten and robbed in the wilderness, then those guys are still out there who did it and they're probably not that far away. What you need to know about the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is it descends 3,000 feet in 15 miles. It's a rugged place, twists, turns, ravines, lots of places to hide, ambush. So maybe this guy's, and people got robbed all the time. So this is not some abstract scenario that Jesus is putting forward. It's real life. And maybe this guy's not even hurt. Maybe he's sort of a setup so that when you go to help, then they pop out and now they got you. So if you slow down and stop, you're, kind of, you're exposing yourself to this danger, and that's a risk. Maybe it had something to do with why the priest and the Levite continued on. They're just trying to save themselves, basically. It's possible. Also, you need to know that if the priest or Levite had helped and like, touched this guy who was dead or dying, uh, they would then be ceremonially unclean and thus unfit to serve in the temple of God which is their occupation. And so that's kind of a big deal, too. So these guys had their reasons. They're not total monsters. And it, it, at first glance, it looks like they're total monsters, right? If you saw someone bleeding on the side of the road and you continue on, that makes you a monster, right? Here's one more thing. Context is everything. In today's world, most of us will go through our entire lives without ever witnessing violence that injures or kills. And that's a good thing. In this time, it's almost unthinkable that you wouldn't witness violence that injures or kills. And so it's a different frame of mind. I'm not trying to say these guys are on the right page. You know, they, they clearly missed the heart of God, and Jesus is, is, is making that point. But you can't just write them off. You can't just say, there's no way, I, I would never do what they did. I don't know anyone who would, and just not consider them part of the message. I think we're probably more like them than we'd like to admit. It also elevates what the Samaritan did for his enemy. Why did he take this huge risk for his enemy? He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to the inn, two denarii to care for him. That's equivalent roughly to two days' wages, which doesn't sound like a lot until you consider that a middle class with disposable income is kind of a 19th century phenomenon. So in this time, what that means is probably two days without eating that well, maybe sleeping outside, discomforting at least. And, he, and that's not the end of it. He says, I'll come back and pay you more if there's more to be paid. So the Samaritan goes all out for this guy. That's the point. That's the takeaway. Jesus' goal is to break the lawyer down. He's after his heart. 
and he's painting up this picture of loving God with everything and your neighbor as yourself. We don't perform well based on social pressure to do the right thing. That's not what's going on with the Samaritan, I don't think. You don't risk your life based on, well, this is the right thing to do, and people would expect me to stop and help. That doesn't make you risk your life. The motivation has to be deeper. So what does it all mean? Who do you identify with in the story? Maybe the lawyer. I know I do. I kind of look at where I am in life and say, well, I've got myself this far. Surely, worst case scenario, if, you know, maybe the salvation thing doesn't work out, I can fall back on my own resources and privilege and abilities, and I'll probably be okay. And I don't like to admit that because it's clearly not it's clearly not the thing to do, as we read in scripture, but it's there, right? It's kind of a daily thing that keeps recurring, and that's what's going on with this, with this lawyer. <clears throat> he believes that ultimately he's, his understanding, his knowledge can save himself. And I, can, I don't like to admit it, but I can identify with that. And if you can too, know that there's hope for this guy. Jesus gives him two really great chances to be convicted by his word, he says, go and do likewise. He doesn't, he doesn't rip this guy apart. He paints him this beautiful picture of, of what it looks like to live out your love of God. And he gives him a chance to respond. We have that same chance. Maybe the priest or the, Lev- or the Levite, maybe you've actually been in a scenario where you know, looking back, that you should have helped somebody. But it was a weird thing at the time, it didn't feel like you could have, you know, it just felt a little, I don't know, the lightning was crashing in the water, it was really wet, it was just pretty inconvenient, I couldn't, couldn't, didn't think to help out at the time. If this is you, just feel the depth of that brokenness, and throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus. He will replace your heart. That's my prayer for myself, that he would replace my heart with his own. And that's the hope that I have through my faith in Jesus. Maybe the Samaritan, maybe you feel like you're outside the church of God, as the Samaritan was, and yet at the same time, you know that all is not right in the world, and you have this desire to help out. To make it right. If that's you, know this. It's, it's more than your, your desire for, f- to do good things is more than just you, you being a good person. It's actually Jesus calling out to you. It's actually the heart of Jesus working through you and calling you out. Also know this. The very first person that Jesus reveals himself to as Messiah, outside of his disciples, is a Samaritan. A woman, after 750 years of bitter feud based on religious differences and betrayal, Jesus reveals himself as Lord and Savior to a Samaritan. So if you feel that you're outside the people of God, there's some kind of bad blood going on there, just let that end today. Jesus revealed himself to you. Lastly, maybe you identify with the disciples. 
working powerful miracles for God through your childlike faith? If so, praise God. Only your love for God will allow you to serve the kingdom in a powerful way. Only your simple childlike faith in the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection, which destroyed death. Believe in Jesus and rejoice, for your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. God, just help us to help us to receive this word that only our faith in you will allow us to to live in a way that pleases you. God, take away any faith that we would have in our own ability, in our own strength, Lord. We have no ability, no strength of our own. All of these things are from you. God, give us this childlike faith where we would we would just trust you completely. We need it desperately. There's no other way for us. And through this, God, help us to serve this community of Montrose and the city of Houston and all the world, just working, just working powerfully for your kingdom. <clears throat> Would you do these things, Lord? We trust you in your name. Amen.